0: Well, good morning. As you uh, as you begin to make your way back to your seats, I just want to welcome you again to Providence Road. As you, I hate to cut conversations short this morning. It's encouraging to see that we all love one another, right? That's a good thing. But as you make your way back to your seats, I just want to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Chris Valencia, and I am the Director of Worship and Arts here at Providence Road. So this is a little bit outside of what I normally get to do on a Sunday morning. Usually I'm standing behind a guitar up here, uh, and I'd be done by now. But this morning I have an opportunity to dive into, uh, continue really our series on Romans. We're going to dive into chapter 12 this morning, and I'm excited to get to do that with you As as we begin to. Look at this passage, uh, we're, we're continuing really a theme. In this whole book of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11 have brought us to this point, and suddenly what we're going to see this morning is that Paul dramatically shifts gears. As as we look at Romans 12, as soon as he begins, we have looked at previously in the first 11 chapters uh, who we are, um, the the why of the gospel, the what of the gospel, and now he's going to shift gears and we're going to begin to look at the how. How do we live out the Christian life? How do we walk in obedience? obedience to the commands of God and to the commands of Scripture, and so that is uh, where we'll be this morning, Romans 12, chapter 1, uh, or yeah, chapter 12, verse 1, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seats nearby, if not, the verses will also be on the screen as we go along today, so uh, let's go ahead and jump into the text, and then we'll pray, and we will get started. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Father, I pray that as we uh, look at this passage this morning, God, that you would allow me to just get out of the way, that you would speak to us by your word, that as we look at the truths of who you are, who we are apart from Christ, and, and now who we are as a result of what Christ has done on our behalf. God, I pray that as we, as we begin to look at the commands of Scripture, Lord, that, you would, that we would do all of this with an eye to your mercy and your grace this morning. As we, have, as we have just sung that we're no longer slaves to fear because we are your children. That we have been bought with a price, we've been ransomed. And so, God, have mercy on us as we look at your word this morning. May we see more of who you are as we look at this today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I don't know how many of you are from Oklahoma Or how many of you may have moved here recently, but a few years ago, back in 2013, on May 20th, there was a tornado that touched down in Newcastle and made its way across the landscape into Moore, just to the north of us, leaving in its wake devastation and catastrophe. This is what uh, the National Weather Service has to say about that event. This tornado caused catastrophic damage in these areas, Newcastle and more, with a maximum rating of EF5. The tornado claimed 24 lives and caused billions of dollars in damage. And although it was astonishing how much mayhem was caused by this tornado in less than 45 minutes What was really incredible about this event was the response of the communities in Oklahoma and the surrounding states, because it seems that just about as soon as the tornado had lifted, there were men and women rushing to the aid of their neighbors and friends, rushing to their families. From out of state, we saw relief workers come in. We saw people begin to pour and converge on Norman and and base here and then go into more in order to love and see the city restored and see it brought back. The city of Moor was devastated. Therefore, the people responded with willing hearts and hands. They gave over the next days and weeks and months and some even years after this event. A reality was presented, a reality which crushed the hearts of those affected and of their neighbors. Therefore, People responded to that reality with action. Without this reality, without the reality of a tornado, there would have been no need for a therefore. A story that begins with, therefore, the people of Oklahoma rebuilt the city of Moore is missing some crucial details. And our passage today contains a similar therefore that is absolutely crucial to how we respond to the next five chapters of Romans. As we begin to look at these, this call to action. It's absolutely crucial that we do not miss the therefore. Pointing back to the first 11 chapters, Paul has presented us with the reality of who God is, of who we are apart from Christ, and now who we are in Christ. Because of what he has done on our behalf, we've seen that there are none who are righteous, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that we are justified before God by the blood of Christ And that because of this justification through faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul is wrapping up this section, this is what he has to say in Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And now, therefore, in light of all of this, Paul begins to outline a response that we ought to have. A response to the hope that is ours in Christ Now, even as I say that this therefore is crucial, one of the dangers, there are two primary dangers of a misguided therefore. And the first is this the first is that we begin to look at Romans 12 and we begin to look at these things that we're called to and we forget the grace of God. We forget that it's in Christ alone that we are made righteous, in Christ alone that we're accepted by the Father. And we begin to look at a list of rules that lead to legalism, that lead us to gospel amnesia. And that we begin to fill with pride as we check off of a list of do's and don'ts. And the second danger of a misguided therefore is this, that as we look at this list of rules, that we look at these things that we're called to walk in, that we begin to look at that list and compare our lives and see how rarely we add up, how rarely we have kept these commands which leads to despair. When we fail to live up to a graceless set of rules, there's only condemnation and hopelessness. There's a third danger, and we'll get into this a bit more a little later on, but it's the danger of a transformation that simply leads to a new form of slavery. But for right now, the therefore of Romans 12 has something to say for us in light of the reality of what we see in chapters 1 through 11, Because of God's grace and mercy, because of these things, Paul says, therefore do, therefore act, therefore be. He calls us to action. And though our salvation is a spiritual reality that is secured in Christ and cannot be taken away from us, we inhabit time and space. We have physical bodies that must interact with people, and with the world around us. And because we must act upon our surroundings, it's important that we know how to do so in a God-honoring and Christ-exalting way. 1 Corinthians 10.31 has this to say, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever it is that you do, do it all to the glory of God, and this can seem really ambiguous, but what we're about to look at as we continue through Romans is we're going to, Paul's going to begin to put some handles on this. He's going to give us uh, sort of some guidelines and a way in which we can walk so that we might do these things. Let's look at Romans 12, 1 again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So right, right out of the gate, I appeal to you brothers. What does he appeal by? He makes his appeal by the mercies of God. He knows we have gospel ADD. Paul knows my heart. He knows that as soon as I see a list of commands, I'm going to forget everything else. I'm going to quit paying attention to, to the truth that has been spoken into my life, and I'm going to begin to look at this list, and I'm going to start checking things that this is a tendency of my heart, and, and I fear for so many of us that as we begin to look at a lesser rules, we have gospel ADD that will cause us to shift our focus away because it's so much easier to just do things. And what Paul is showing us, what this appeal shows us, is that the following commands are designed to be a part of a worship liturgy that responds to the truth of Romans 1 through 11, a worship liturgy that responds to the truth Of Romans one through eleven. Now, if you're not familiar with the term liturgy, it's just the order in which something is done. So, um, we have a worship liturgy that we walk through on Sunday mornings. Your Monday has a liturgy. Wake up, go to work, go to lunch, go back to work, go home. Right? Very generic Monday liturgy. Your weekends have a liturgy. Fourth of July celebrations typically have a liturgy. Don't go to work. Spend time with friends and families. Watch fireworks. So, And there may, be some, there may be some sort of freedom to do a couple of other things in there as well. But um, there's a general sense and an order to which these things occur in our lives. And so what we are called to this morning is a worship liturgy. What it does is it looks at the mercy of God in Christ Jesus and responds with a life lived in light of that grace and mercy that we've been shown. It is a, it's a worshipful response to the reality of who we are in Christ. What does this life of worship look like, though? Well, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice. So the first thing to notice here is that as Paul is is sending this letter to the church in Rome, they would have been familiar with the idea of sacrifice. Uh, and, And that most typically, though, when you look at a sacrifice... In old religious custom, it would have been a blood sacrifice, and it would have required the death of an animal, of an innocent being. But that's not what Paul's calling us to here. It's a living sacrifice rather than a dead one. And part of that is because... Our own blood is insufficient to save. Again, we are looking at this in light of the reality of who we are in Christ. His blood covers us. His righteousness covers us. Therefore, it's not a blood sacrifice. It is not a one-time offering he is looking for, but it is a continuous sacrifice in response to the gospel. Paul gives us a a little bit of an example of this in Philippians 2.17. Philippians 2.17, he says this, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul walked throughout his life in obedience, and what he says is, even if I'm to be poured out as an offering, he gets this idea, a living sacrifice, even if all of my being is poured out and expended for the sake of the gospel, I rejoice. I rejoice in that, he says. He's glad glad to have his life poured out on the altar of service to the bride of Christ. With his eyes fixed on the glory of God, Paul rejoices that he might pour out his life as a sacrificial offering for the sake of the church. And this living sacrifice is one that is supposed to be holy and acceptable before God. But what exactly is it that redeems our work in order to make it holy and acceptable? Our own blood is not sufficient to save us, as we've already said. So how could our works be acceptable before God? If our, if our own blood could not be poured out as an acceptable sacrifice before God, then what is going to make a lesser work any more worthy? And it's this. It's the fact that Christ's righteousness redeems our work. It's in Christ that our work becomes acceptable before the, before the Father, not because of our work, but because of Christ's finished work on our behalf. Our sacrifice is a joyful response to an inward reality. Uh, Let's look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. It says this, and this is familiar for many of us probably, but I don't want us to just sort of breeze past this and miss what it's saying here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not A result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, we're not saved by works, not a result of works, so that we cannot boast in our own actions. They don't save us. So, what then are they there for? And this is what verse 10 gives us a little insight into For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it says we're created for good works, but not just created for good works, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it's the fact that these, these works are in Christ that redeems them. It's the fact that they are in Christ that makes them acceptable before God. He has prepared these works for us to do. He is calling us to something, and yet it's only in Christ that these become an acceptable offering of worship to God. In Christ Jesus, we are instruments of God's mercy, created for good works, not in order to become his child, but because of who we already are as his children. Philippians 3, 8 and 9 says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So so Paul says, forget my works. And Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He kept the law. If anyone was going to be justified by their works, Paul was a good candidate. And yet he says... Forget the righteousness that comes from the law. I don't want that. That cannot save. But I need the righteousness that comes only through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness of Christ redeems our work and makes it an acceptable offering before God. Let's continue on into verse 2 of Romans 12. Verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed, he says, but be transformed. Not conformed, but transformed. And yet it's possible to be conformed even when we think we're being transformed. If we think that God will love us any more or any less because of our ability to keep a list of rules, then what we find is not that we're being transformed by obedience to commandments, but we're actually just conforming our lives to a new set of rules. Radical religiosity pairs new behaviors with the old system of meritocracy, of earning our way before the Father, thereby conforming good behaviors to a works-based system. And that's a system that brings about slavery and death, not freedom and joy in Jesus. The trouble is it's so easy to measure performance. It's so easy to look at a list of do's and don'ts and to think that we're justified when we've kept that list. But this is what Jesus has to say if we just want to kind of go through the motions. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, It's possible to do things even in the name of Christ, but not to be in Christ, to borrow from his account, to try to borrow from his righteousness in order to gain our own righteousness, in order to gain our own right standings. And Jesus says, that's not going to work. I never knew you. It's not a list of rules. It's not a list of do's and don'ts that he's after, but he's after our hearts Even good things can become a bargaining chip if we begin to borrow from the list of how to be a good Christian and we don't keep that in light of who we are already in Christ. They either become a bargaining chip where we try to um, take those things in order to earn our own favor and acceptability before God Or they become a way to compare ourselves with others. So we start to take these criteria and then we measure our lives and the lives of those around us against this list of criteria. And when we see others who are falling short, we begin to judge. And when we see that we're keeping this list, pride begins to well up. Or vice versa, we begin to see the lives of others around us who seem to have it all together And then we look at our own lives and we recognize the failure to live up to these standards, bringing about hopelessness. Even good things can become a way to compare ourselves with others if we don't keep them in light of the gospel and in light of the reality of who we already are in Christ. And being transformed does not simply mean living by a new set of rules. It means living in light of a new reality. But how are we transformed? We're transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of your mind. But how are our minds renewed? By remembering who we are in Christ. By remembering the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1-5 has this to say about who we are. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world You were dead, but you've been made alive together with Christ. This is a transformation. This is a reality for those of us who are in Christ, no longer dead, walking in life in Christ. The Greek word for transformed is metamorpho, meaning to change from one thing to another, to change completely from one thing to another. And a little bit further down in Ephesians 2, in verse 19, Paul says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. No longer dead, but alive in Christ. No longer strangers, but citizens. Transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this word renewal, again, I, I had a little fun with the Greek this week, maybe too much, but this idea of renewal is anachinosis, meaning a renewal or a renovation or a complete change for the better. A complete change for the better. Now, uh, my wife and I have had a couple of opportunities recently to go out of town, go on a couple of trips. So our one-year anniversary was June 11th, and we took a trip that weekend to Hot Springs, Arkansas. And then last week, we had an opportunity to go to a friend's wedding in southeastern Kansas. Um, And on these trips, we took advantage of an opportunity that is not available to us in the Valencia household, and that is this, HGTV. We don't have cable at home, and I know maybe this is not your idea of like a, a weekend out of town is to go sit in a hotel room and watch cable television. Um, however, in our time in our hotel room, we found HGTV just to be fascinating. So it was Property Brothers, it was Beachfront Bargain Hunt, and it was Chip and Joanna Gaines right with Fixer Upper. And I will tell you, you want to talk about anachinosis, if you want to talk about a complete change for the better, this is, the sa- this is what these shows exist for. This is the whole sake of the show is for renovation, for renewal, to see change brought about, and not just uh, sort of an a easy paint over everything, a gloss over, but knocking out walls, redoing the entire interior of these homes, giving them new purpose. The house is transformed, it's renewed. It serves a new purpose for a new family. And when we're brought into the family of God, the same is true for us. We're transformed and renewed in order that we might live for a new purpose as a part of this family. The reality of who we are is changed by the Spirit of God at work within us. And now Paul says, live like it. Live life in light of the spiritual reality of who you are in Christ, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you begin to reflect the inward reality of who you are with your outward actions. Now, this last bit of Romans 12, too, talks about this idea of the will of God. And uh, that can sound pretty daunting to a lot of us. I know that... uh, Previously in my life, when I would think about the will of God, um, there was this idea of a very momentous occasion in which probably there was either a trumpet blast or writing on the wall or an earthquake or something, and then the voice of God with clear directions as to how I was supposed to live my life, what I was supposed to do. And a really helpful resource for me in the midst of this mindset was uh, Kevin DeYoung's book called Just Do Something. And what he really tries to do for us is to demystify this idea of the will of God and to distill it into a very simple principle that Jesus outlines in Mark twelve twenty eight through 31. Mark 12, 28 through 31, it says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing, the Sadducees, that is, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And what De Young begins to do is, is to show how all of the commands of Scripture, all of the other commands, are rooted in this command love God love others. And then the next thing he encourages us to do is, and then do what he's wired you to do. Love God, love others, and then do whatever it is he has uniquely given you the opportunity to do. So some of us in here may be lawyers, or doctors, or accountants, or stay-at-home moms, or students, wherever you find yourself, to understand how to walk in the will of God is to understand that loving God, and then loving others, and then Doing that in the context of where he has put you. This is how we walk in the will of God. And this is not a command that is divorced from a why or a therefore. This is not simply something that comes out of the blue and then we're just called to obedience. But it has its root in a reality of who we are in Christ, just as the rest of these therefores do. And that is found in 1 John 4. 1 John 4, starting in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, therefore, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. A little further down in this same chapter, in verse 17, John continues with this, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear is that if the will of God is for us to love God and to love others, then obedience to such a command will necessarily affect the lives of others, and it does this in two ways. It does this in two ways. The first is community. That we are called not to walk out the commands of Scripture in isolation, but in community. At Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, Has this to encourage us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're called to community to encourage one another in Christ, to point back and say, this is who you are. Even as we look to the commands, I know it's hard. I know that you have failed in this, but remember who you are in Christ and press on and encourage, continue to walk. Even in our faithlessness, it says he's faithful. And then secondly, the call to love necessitates mission. Jesus in Matthew 28 gives, again, a very common, popular call to this love. But he says this, He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so he he reminds us again, hey, you understand, in light of the love of God that has been poured out upon you, in light of his grace, in light of his mercy, now go and live out of this love for one another within the community, but then also in a way that that displays the love of God and declares and demonstrates it for the rest of the world to see. And call them to the same thing, love your neighbor, so that they might taste and see the goodness and love and grace and mercy of God in your life, that they might also find freedom and joy in Jesus. Every other command that we're going to see in the following chapters of Romans find their basis in the command to love God and love others. We've been loved by God, ransomed from sin and death by the spotless Lamb of God. And the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. Therefore, let's live as the redeemed. Let's pray. God, you know that even in the midst of speaking these very truths about who you are, that my own heart is so prone to begin to compare and contrast and to measure and wonder how I add up. God, this is dangerous for us as we, as we begin to look at the things that you've called us to, that we would do so as a way to be loved by you. So God, I pray that we would keep your mercies in clear view And that in light of the the reality of who we are in Christ, God, that you would give us grace to move to action, to begin to walk in obedience to the commands of Scripture that we would lay our lives down on a daily basis. Not out of compulsion or or out of a, a fear. Your word says that perfect love casts out fear. But God, that as we understand that we're loved by you and what that means for us and that we're now able to love you and love others, God, would you give us the grace to do that? Lord, would you fix our eyes firmly on the truths of who we are in Christ so that even as we begin to walk out what it looks like to live in obedience to the commands of Scripture, God, that we would do so knowing that we are loved and accepted children of God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we uh, move into a time of communion, we have an opportunity to uh, respond to the reality of who we are in Christ, to remember again as we gather together and encourage one another, as Hebrews 10 talks about. Remember who you are in Christ Because of what he has accomplished for us. Then on that night as Jesus was with his disciples. He took the bread. And he broke it. And he said this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. And he said this is my blood shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. And so. I don't know where you're at right now this morning. If you've been able to check the list and everything's looking good. Or if this morning maybe you come in and there are a lot of missing check boxes on the do's and don'ts that you feel like you need to keep in order to measure up. But this morning, take just a moment and remember who you are in Christ that if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, if his blood covers you, that this morning you are deeply, deeply loved. So take a few moments to reflect on that. Will we lay aside our lists and remember the grace by which we're saved this morning? And if you're in here and... You don't maybe buy into all of this. Maybe you think you're not a conformer. Really, society doesn't like conformity. We, we sort of uh, are repelled by the idea that we would, we would conform. We pride ourselves on being non a lot of times. But if you're, if you're in here and you're just not buying this this morning, I would encourage you to look at your list Look at what it is that you have done to try to reinvent or transform your life apart from the good news of the gospel and ask yourself, how are you holding up even to your own list? This morning, what we're reminded of in communion is that our righteousness is purchased by Christ. It's sealed. It is a finished payment. And so if you... Uh, you don't have to be a member of Providence Road to take communion with us this morning, um, but this is a family deal. So this is for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. We're going to take just a few moments, and, um, and then you can come. There are two stations in the front and one in the back, uh, and you can receive communion. If you are not a believer in this place, I would just ask you again, start to look at that list. How are you adding up? And I would invite you this morning to trade your list for Jesus, which is full and complete paid for. And this morning, if you long to be found in a new identity, in a a reality that is renewed and transformed by the finished work of Jesus, then I would encourage you to come and receive communion for the first time. If that's not you, if you're not ready for that, that's okay. No one's going to judge you, but we just ask you to just remain where you are. And if you have questions, please come find me or uh, talk to a friend or family member who may have brought you. This is something that we're passionate about because it's the reality of who we are and it informs the way that we live. So take just a few moments and when you're ready, come and receive communion.